So one of the things I like when I you know, study history, think about it, is comparing then and now, and both the way things have changed and the ways they haven't. And for those of us who live in Montana, we're fortunate to be in a place where much of the landscape hasn't changed. This is certainly true of the national parks, since that is, of course, one of the core tenets behind the founding of the parks in the first place. Writing specifically about Yellowstone, but expressing a sentiment that applies equally to other parks, Emerson Huff said, our parks are selections of the old American wilderness, reserved practically unchanged. They feed the spirit, the soul, the character of America. I know Yellowstone and love it all. So will you love it when you know it. And you ought to know it. That is part of your education as an American. Thank God there you are still able to see part of the Old West, your Old West, as it was in the beginning. Can y'all see that okay? Do we need to turn the lights down or anything? Okay. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to things remaining the same, railroad travel is at the opposite end of the extreme. It's not what it used to be. And we no longer associate a trip to Glacier or Yellowstone with the NP or the Great Northern. But that wasn't true 125 years ago. During the early years, the great majority of Americans traveling to one of Montana's national parks came by train, and it was the railroad that most likely convinced them that it was a trip worth taking. Today, overcrowding is one of the major problems facing a great many of our national parks, but a century and a half ago, just the opposite was true. Western parks were inaccessible to the majority of Americans, both geographically and financially. 90% of the people lived in the East at a time when all of the parks were located in the West. To fulfill their potential, parks had to attract visitors, and this wasn't always easy. If they couldn't attract visitors, then the survival of the parks themselves was in jeopardy. From the start, art was an essential element of the National Park story. Beginning in the early decades of the 19th century, trappers and traders circulated tales of a fantastical land of steaming geysers and boiling mud pots. While these stories were intriguing, many people insisted that they couldn't be true. Consequently, in 1871, the federal government sent an expedition led by Ferdinand Hayden to determine whether the claims were factual. Painter Thomas Moran and photographer William Henry Jackson accompanied Hayden in order to provide visual documentation of the expedition's findings. Moran traveled at the expense of the Northern Pacific Railroad. The paintings that he produced, most notably the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, were instrumental in convincing Congress and the American people that the rumors were in fact true. The following year, Yellowstone was set aside as the world's first national park. From the beginning, the Northern Pacific played a key role in the development of the park. The railroad had financed Moran's travels with the Hayden Expedition, and it would continue to sponsor artists in similar pursuits. In 1883, the NP completed its transcontinental line from Minnesota to Seattle, opening up the region in ways that had heretofore been unimaginable. For the next 20 plus years, the great majority of visitors traveling to Yellowstone took the NP to Livingston. A trunk line then carried the passengers south from Livingston, initially going as far as Cinnabar, Cinnabar 
and eventually all the way to the park's northern entrance and gardener. Because these travelers spent most of their time in Montana and saw so much of the treasure state en route to the park, for them, a trip to Yellowstone was, in essence, a trip to Montana. And I think that's why we Montanans claim Yellowstone as a Montana park. Um, as soon as this new transcontinental line was functioning, the MP wasted no time in commissioning artists and photographers to travel west on its behalf to capture on canvas and on film the dramatic scenery that could be found here. And no place in the West was the scenery more dramatic than in Yellowstone. Here we see the earliest example of original railroad-sponsored art in the Historical Society's collection. It's a field study of the National Hotel at Mammoth, which was painted by Ralph DeCamp, a Moorhead, Minnesota artist, who in 1885 traveled for the NP from Minnesota to Seattle. He was accompanied by a photographer named Oli Flayton, and the pair spent several weeks touring Yellowstone by pack train en route to the West Coast. This is Layton's photograph of the same scene. And this is DeCamp's rendering of a tent camp at Mammoth Terrace. Typical of many artists while he was in Yellowstone, DeCamp painted rough fill sketches like these and later transformed them into completed works once he was back in his studio. The NP paid the artist's expenses for traveling, and in return, the railroad received the right of first refusal on any paintings that resulted from the trip. No. Excuse me. I got ahead of myself there. So that's the tent camp, obviously. And this is a photo of the camp himself uh, painting. I think that looks like not a bad way to spend a few months, if you had any artistic talent, which I don't. While the Northern Pacific temporarily utilized the artist, the talents of a great many artists and photographers, none had the long-term association with the railroad that did F.J. Haynes. For 25 years, Haynes served as the official photographer of the NP. In addition, the Haynes family, including F.J. and his son Jack, operated photography concession in Yellowstone from 1883 to 1962. The railroad's motivation in sponsoring artists and photographers like Haynes and DeCamp was simple. They sought to lure vacationers westward, thus increasing passenger traffic and, correspondingly, railroad profits. The mastermind behind the NP's efforts was Charles Fee, an advertising genius who wanted to make sure that the Northern Pacific was synonymous with Yellowstone and who that nothing knew that nothing would accomplish this goal more effectively than a dramatic painting or a striking photograph. While the NP was the first railroad to ally itself with the specific park, over the next few decades, other railroads followed suit. Uh, the Union Pacific, Union Pacific and Burlington also relied heavily on Yellowstone themes in their advertising. This is another example of Union Pacific art. For many years, I think like 25 years, they uh, painted a series of ads that feature, always featured these bears. The Southern Pacific adopted Yosemite and the Santa Fe claimed the Grand Canyon. And of course, the Great Northern Champion Glacier National Park. Louis Hill, president of the Great Northern, 
and a man whom the Saturday Evening Post called, quote, the greatest press agent in the country, was determined to secure Glacier's reputation as the crown of the continent, and, not incidentally, boost his railroad in the process. Railroads used the artworks they commissioned in a variety of ways. They commissioned monumental-sized paintings, like this montage of Glacier scenes by John Ferry, to hang in train stations, hotel lobbies, and banks all across the country. Such paintings were extremely powerful in communicating the word of the West and winning public support for the parks. No matter how widely they were dispersed, however, original paintings could only reach a small percentage of the American people. To reach a much larger audience, the railroads also transformed images they commissioned into an incredible variety of promotional formats. They produced colorful posters, like the series I've been showing by Gustav Krollman. In addition to these posters, they made everything ranging from playing cards, to matchbook covers, to these promotional stamps uh, put out by the Great Northern. And that um, one on the lower left is a Charlie Russell painting. Uh, there are several Russell series paintings in this series. And an almost limitless variety of railroad publications, including dining car menus like this one, timetables, schedules, airplane maps, and a countless variety of brochures, booklets, and pamphlets, like this one by the Oregon Shortline. And I mean, who wouldn't want to go where, the, where gush the geysers? <laughs> and then there was the Northern Pacific's magazine, Wonderland, which was published from 1896 to 1906. Uh, originally, it started out kind of as a Alice in Wonderland sort of thing, the first publication, but then it morphed into the fact that uh, Yellowstone itself was Wonderland. At the turn of the 20th century, advances in printing technology had made feasible the mass production of such materials, and Louis Hill, Charles Fee, Charles Fee, and their counterparts with other railroads were quick to recognize the marketing possibility that such images offered. Countless Americans were now exposed to such scenes as Moran's Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone and the wildlife of Glacier. And in the process, they were informed that the railroad could take them. To lure passengers westward, these promotional materials focused on a variety of unique features offered by the distant parks. First and foremost was the scenery. The national park concept was, at the outset, a uniquely American idea, and the primary impetus behind creating the first parks was the preservation of the most spectacular scenery of the western landscape. This is a stereograph card featured in an 1881 Haynes photo of Gibbon Fall in Yellowstone. The areas that were set aside as national parks were selected because they represented nature at its most sublime. As Mary Roberts Reinhardt wrote in a Great Northern brochure um, talking about Glacier, there is no voice in all the world so insistent to me as the wordless call of these mountains. I shall go back. Those who want, go once always hope to go back. The lure of the great free spaces is in their blood. Many early visitors to Montana's parks felt incapable of describing the beauty they encountered. On a cabin trip in 1882, Mary Bradshaw Richards wrote, 
May you live to visit, enjoy, and remember the Yellowstone National Park. I dip my pen and ink tonight with a keen sense of the audacity of an effort to continue my feeble description of its beauties. The sentiment of being unable to describe Yellowstone is echoed again and again in early journals and letters written by park visitors. Railroad promoters, however, were never at such a loss of words. For example, a great northern brochure from the early 1920s describes Glacier as follows. Here indeed are riches. There are other canyons as deep, other mountains as high, but those who have roamed the world with open eyes say earnestly that there is no other place where nature has so condensed her wonders and run riot with such utter abandon, where she has carved and hewn with such unrestrained fancy and scattered her jewels with so reckless a hand. Here is the land of shiny mountains. Yellowstone scenery was not only scenery that was remarkably beautiful, but also a landscape of amazing oddity, or what Bernard Devoto describes as the extremes of natural spectacle. For example, an NP brochure from 1927 describes Yellowstone as a real wonderland, embracing an aggregation of fantastic phenomena as weird as it is wild. But all of, all of its wonders, none is so unusual, so startling as the geysers. Once seen, the memory and mystery of them will forever linger. In addition to the spectacular scenery, the ability to view wildlife in its natural habitat was another attraction promoted by the railroads. As early as 1883, artist George Catlin was lamenting the disappearance of the bison from the Great Plains when he wrote, What a splendid contemplation when one imagines them as they might be in the future scene, preserved in the pristine beauty and wildness, in a magnificent park. What a beautiful and thrilling specimen for America to preserve and hold up to the world. A nation's park containing man and beast and all the wild and freshness of their nature's beauty. As noted, historian Bernard, Bernard DeVoto wrote, the parks are not the only places in the U.S. where the order of nature is undisturbed, but they are the only places where the public at large can ever get at it. Our civilization excludes steadily increasing numbers of Americans from first-hand knowledge of nature, and yet their need of it can never be extinguished. The parks are at once preserves, exhibits, and theaters of nature going on. And I'm not sure that all of these scenes are exactly what DeVoto had in mind when he said nature undisturbed. <laughs> in addition to the scenery and the wildlife, another factor that attracted Eastern visitors to places like Yellowstone and Glacier was the very mystique of the West itself. Cowboys and Indians alike personified the mythological frontier and both became common symbols in railroad promotion. As T.C. McFluhan, said in her book, Green Tracks, the distant West was a land built with the promise of a whole new and different set of experiences that implied a rite of passage from the familiar East to the wild, exotic, and slightly dangerous West. The Great Northern was particularly expert at utilizing images of the Blackfeet, whose traditional homeland had included Glacier Park. No railroad artist is better known for his depiction of Native Americans than Winnell Rice, whose portraits of the Blackfeet, like this one, were featured on Great Northern's calendars for more than 30 years. 
Unlike most of the other artists and their employee, whom they imported from points east, Rice was already working in Glacier area when he was discovered by the Great Northern. He was a German born and trained and came to Browning about 1920, specifically to paint portraits of the black people. Not only were images of Blackfeet by Rice and other artists used on Great Northern calendars, members of the tribe were employed by the railroad to greet visitors arriving at the East Glacier Station, to drive tour buses through the park, and travel around the country on the train promoting the glacier experience. As one Great Northern brochure proclaimed, any presentation of Glacier National Park would be inadequate and incomplete that did not have regard for the tribesmen from the very shadows of the Shining Mountains and whose traditions and history have so enriched this area. And if spectacular scenery, majestic wildlife, and the mystique of the West weren't enough to make people want to visit the national parks, railroad promoters and the artists they employed had one final appeal for reluctant travelers. During the teens and 1920s, Americans were bombarded with the message that not only did they have an opportunity to support America's scenic wonderlands, but they had an obligation to do so. No longer, railroad advertisements said, was it appropriate for Americans to spend their money visiting European castles and cathedrals. Rather, travelers were now informed that it was their patriotic duty to explore the treasures in their own backyards. The Great Northerners coined the phrase, see America first, and championed the cause. Other railroads were soon repeating the sentiment using similar slogans designed to appeal to national pride. As Emerson Huff admonished on behalf of the UNP, I know Yellowstone and love it all. So will you love it when you know it, and you ought to know it. That is part of your education as an American. But for most Americans, the national parks were not, in fact, in their own backyards. Until the advent of the automobile, national parks were primarily the domain of wealthy vacationers who could afford the money and the time that train travel necessitated. To cater to these affluent travelers, and thereby increase their own revenues, the railroads spared no effort in providing accommodation and tourist amenities in the parks. The Northern Pacific promised its patrons, you may travel and live in perfect comfort. And the Great Northern bragged on its glacier park facilities, the region is an unspoiled wilderness, and yet within these mountains, in perfect harmony with the beauty brought by nature, there are modern stopping places which serve as focal points for an attractive social life where pleasant contacts and new friendships are made. I'd certainly be willing to travel someplace for an attractive social life. <laughs> Railroad travelers also had the opportunity to camp, but of course this didn't mean they were going to rub it. Rather, camping companies like the Wiley Way shown here hosted visitors on highly structured park tours by coach that included nightly stops at tent camps based strategically throughout the park. In 1903, Hester Henshaw described her impressions of such a camping trip in her journal. At last we came to Willow Park Station, our camp for the night. Just imagine a group of tents arranged so as to form a small village. Each tent had a wooden floor, a stove, a wood box full of wood, a bench with a small mirror, and water pitchers. In each room was a curtain box for a washstand, a small mirror somewhat weighty on the surface, some towels and soap. The next morning, she was awakened when, quote, the boy came in bringing hot water. 
And many early visitors expected amenities that we no longer generally associate with a wilderness experience, like dancing at the lodge or swimming at the old faithful geyser pool, shown here in the 1930s. As long as the railroad stood the benefit of promoting park tourism, they continued to do so. While it was, was extremely profitable for them for many decades, it couldn't last forever. The Great Depression greatly curtailed train travel, but ultimately it was the automobile that ended the relationship. The Park Service, which was formed in 1960, eventually took over the job of advertising the parks, often promoting the same draws that the railroads had earlier promoted. Today, we can still enjoy the colorful posters and captivating photographs that were created to draw our ancestors the scenic wonders of the West. Now, however, they serve not only as a lure to the parks, but also as a lure to the past. And thanks to the foresight of earlier generations who preserved these remarkable wonderlands, we, like readers in 1915, can still heed Mary Reinhardt's advice when she wrote, If you are normal and philosophical, if you love your country, if you like bacon or will eat it anyhow, if you are willing to learn how little you count in the eternal scheme of things, if you are prepared for the first day or two to be able to locate every muscle in your body and a few extra ones that have crept in, go ride in the Rocky Mountains and save yourself. <laughs> <laughs>